how to start. Well, you know, it's just writing. I mean, here's something important to remember about dialogue. Every word matters. No, it doesn't. They're modern. I want to go to this place that I think it needs to go to. The only thing that counts is what you see on the screen. I will write like four or five, six hours a day. And it will be a voice made of ink and rage. Okay, I'm, re I'm really glad you asked me that question. Welcome to the Creative Principles Podcast. I'm your host, Brock Swinson. Over the past 200-plus episodes, I've had the good fortune of speaking with dozens of screenwriters, actors, and directors, such as Aaron Sorkin, Mel Brooks, Carrie Fukunaga, Whitney Cummings, Michael Imperioli, and William Monaghan, among others. We've dissected ideas on story, character, filmmaking, habits, and various principles for creative life. If this is your first time listening, make sure to hit that subscribe button on iTunes or SoundCloud. You can also find several of these interviews on the Creative Screenwriting Magazine website, in addition to some that aren't available in audio, such as with Nick Kroll or Stephen Merchant. In addition to the podcast, also make sure to search for the new video essay series on YouTube, also called Creative Principles, where we take a deep dive into movies and television. Join millions of viewers for subjects like the 16 personalities expressed as characters, Did Home Alone, Rowan John Hughes' Career, The Greatest Movie Never Made, and How Jackie Chan Creates Perfection Through Failure, among many more. That's Creative Principles on YouTube. Mike Reese's new book, Springfield Confidential, isn't exactly a tell-all, but that's because there's not much to tell in terms of friction in the writer's room. In fact, in hindsight, that's why he thinks there might be so much success behind the series. He said, there's no dirt, there's no friction. It's very rare in TV that everyone is pulling in the same direction. Everyone is trying to make the best show they can. In this exclusive interview, Reese discusses the origin of his book, Springfield Confidential, how Al Jean interprets fan comments, how writing the show has changed over the past three decades, why screenwriting itself is Darwinian, and why hard work is recognized in the industry. If you enjoyed this interview, look for the print version on Creative Screenwriting's website and join millions of viewers for the new YouTube video essay series, also called Creative Principles, where we dissect films, series, and more. The book, a, a guy I had never met, I, uh, I think I dealt with him on the phone a couple of times, they met Clickstein, called me up, and said, you and I, were going to drive all over America, and then I'm going to write a book called Mike Reese's America. And because my mom always told me, always take rides from strangers, I said, sure, fine. And that was going to be the idea. The book was going to be just me touring America with this guy, and I think he was going to kind of ghostwrite it or, you know, be my Boswell. And uh, we go in to pitch the book, and uh, the idea we say it's going to be Mike Reese looks at America. There's not going to be any Simpsons in it at all. And here the book comes out six months later. I wound up writing it, not get, having it ghostwritten. And it's 98% Simpsons. I never rode in a car with this guy Clickstein anywhere. So that was it. That's how it happened. And if he had come to me and said, Mike, you want to write a memoir of your years about The Simpsons? I would have said, oh, no, I think that's presumptuous and it's the work of so many people. So it was the publisher really sort of nudged me into this. And 
sort of maneuvered me into writing a book that people might actually want to read. What was, I mean, obviously there's a ton of knowledge here and information, but, you know, was there any pushback? You talk about a little bit with, you know, some feuds over the years, but most of that stuff's probably decades old by now. But was there anything that you were kind of hesitant to put in the book or how did you, you know, balance those stories out? The the funny thing and the, uh, the amazing thing about The Simpsons was that in 30 years there, there were literally two scandals. And one of them was ongoing between the two creators of the show. Uh, and that went a few years. Matt Grain, Sam Simon was very resentful of Matt Groening getting all the credit for The Simpsons. And that just aided him. And he was like solidarity to Matt's Mozart. And it was nothing Matt did intentionally. Matt was has always been very generous with credit, but it was the press just loved to make a hero out of Matt Groening, the underground cartoonist who came in and changed everything. So that was our one scandal. And then about five years later, we had a bad day and a half where we wanted to do a certain episode and Matt Groening didn't want to do it. And that's the entirety. That's all the dirt you're going to get out of my book. If you do anyone buy Springfield Confidential looking for dirt, buy a potted plant instead. And and what's sort of nice about that is the idea, and it didn't hit me till after the book came out, was the idea, well, maybe that's one reason The Simpsons is such a success and keeps going, is there is no dirt. There is no friction. Everybody gets along. And it's very rare in TV. Everyone's pulling in the same direction. Everyone's trying to make the best show they can. So that's the secret. And just parenthetically, since I wrote the book, I started reading other kind of TV memoirs. I was never really interested. Uh, but then I read, oh, this is how Monty Python operated, too. There's really no friction there. These guys were friends all the way through. They respected each other's work. There's no dirt and scandal in a history of Monty Python and the show MASH. Again, long-running, beloved show. No fighting. Everybody got along. Everyone worked together. What's kind of so? I know you've obviously you've written tons of scripts. Uh, you've written children's books. What was your experience with in this nonfiction world? Did you find it more more or less difficult, or what was kind of some differences there? Yeah, there was really uh, what was very lucky with the book is um, a it's it's my life. It's everything. It's every story I've ever told in my life about everything I've ever done. So if you buy this book. You never have to listen to me again, and, uh, which is very sad because my wife bought three copies. So uh, what was very lucky for the book was that uh, I've been a professional lecturer. I've spoken at 300 colleges in America. I've lectured in over 22 countries talking about the Simpsons. It's a, it's a, it's a real – it's a grand speech, something I can take on the road, something all the world is interested in. So I go and I tell about an hour of stories and then I do Q&A and I hear everything people want to know about The Simpsons. So it's not it's not just a book. It's a it's really a distillation of 20 years of lecturing. So every story is very polished. It's been tried out. You know, you rarely read a book where you go, wow, every joke in this book has been tried out in front of 50,000 people. 
So it reads pretty well, and people, a lot of people have told me the audio book is even better, and I got to read the audio book just because it does. It comes out of sort of an oral tradition. So how do you get better? You mentioned like at some of these events, you'll have fans come up and they'll admit that they're the ones, you know, talking trash on the Internet. How do you find some value there? Is, is it repetition? Like when do you know that, you know, based on some fan interaction, you might actually need to make a change for the show? And that's the thing. It's uh, our, our fans. I call them our fans, even though they're so mean. They're so brutal about the show that. Nobody at the show reads that anymore. No one reads the bulletin boards except Al Jean, the man who's been running the show for 20 years. Al Jean will go there week after week and see our fans crapping on the show. And just to show you how mean they are and how brave Al is, was uh, one week Al was in a car accident. And this is this tells you everything about Al. He was in a horrendous car accident and still managed to get to work at The Simpsons. And I think he tweeted that. I, I was in a car wreck. I still managed to get to work on time. And one of our fans wrote, I wish you had died. So he, himself, he runs this gauntlet every week about The Simpsons, and yet he does it because every once in a while they make a good point. And if a point comes up a lot, uh, he knows it's worth listening to. And And... You know, they are good points every once in a while. But people really hate uh, when we make Homer too jerky, too mean. You know, they, they have a phrase, they call him jerk-ass Homer, and we've, we've tried to alleviate that. I don't think we do that. We don't do it anymore. They've turned us in the right direction. They could be a little more gentle in their suggestions. But uh, that's it. He's less of a jerk. He's not as stupid as he had gotten, you know. Homer got a little dumber every year, and, and somewhere, you know, about 10, 15 years ago, he'd reached mineral level, and we said, God, we got to smarten him up a little. So uh, that's the kind of thing we learned from the fans. And I'll say, too, especially to Al's credit, Al Jean, who's the hand at the tiller, um, we don't get complaints that much anymore. You know, for, for years, this is what I put myself through. I would go out lecturing. And I go, any questions? And the first question was always, what do you say to people who say the Simpsons have gone downhill? That's a real chicken way to ask the question. They're not saying, why has the Simpsons gone downhill? They go, what do you say to people who say that? And it's like, you're not fooling me. That's like, what do you say to people who say your sister's a slut? You know? Right. I used to get that question a lot, and I haven't heard that question in years. So I go, all right, that's they don't think the show's gone downhill. So that's great to hear. And I'll be the first one to admit that every now and again, <laughs> we put out a bad decade of shows. So you mentioned, uh, I love the uh, history in the book. You kind of talk about the early days, and you guys really had nothing to lose. You didn't think the show was going to last. How did you keep that that mentality going forward, the nothing to lose or just put everything into it as the show started to get popular? Well, you know, it, it was funny. I was just thinking the other day, um, when this show came on the air, it was 1989, TV really kind of sucked. TV was really bad. And 
You know, I I used to love TV growing up, and I liked the imagination shows, The Bewitched, and I Dream a Genie, and Beverly Hillbillies. These shows were very colorful, and they were plotted, and that kind of thing. And uh, this is something I, I blame Norman Lear, who I think is a genius of TV, and he made uh, All in the Family, which I think is the greatest show of all time. But he said, look at this. You don't need special effects. You don't need... You know, magical characters. You just need three people sitting in a living room. That's all you need. And all of TV just took the bad message of that. That's right. We don't need to try at all. Just three people sitting on a couch talking for a half hour. And that was TV in 1989. And I think when we started doing the show, we just, it was just sort of our rebellion and our chance to do things our way was saying, no, let's pack the show. Let's, you know, it's animation. Let's go a lot of different places and let's move fast and let's do as little talking and as much visual as we can. And once people reacted to that, then it was, uh, then it, it, it switched from liberation and sort of creative freedom to fear and pressure. And that's guided the show for at least 28, 29 years is, we don't want to be the guys who screw up the Simpsons. We don't want, that's it. We we don't want to ruin the show for other people, and that that motivates us. So you mentioned in the book a lot of um, writers have have gone on from the show and done other shows like Veep and all kinds of other great comedy. What do you look for, or what do you present in the writers' room? Like, how do you create balance among the writers? What do you look for when you're hiring someone new? We just hire, you know, luckily they send us, you know, the best writers want to work on the show. And we just sit through the very best writers. And uh, for anyone who doesn't know how it's done, we've always done it this way, which is to break into TV. You write a sample script. You write a spec episode. Now, this has changed recently This was because like anything in TV, it was a brilliant system that worked perfectly. And so the network said, Let's change that. But, uh, up up during my 30 years writing for TV, you would write a sample episode of a, of a show that is already on the air. And this would show I can write for existing characters. I can create an original plot. I can type all those things. I broke into TV writing a Golden Girls script. I wrote a Golden Girls, and now I am one. But... Uh, but I wrote this script, and I, I remember Al, Gene, and I, we worked so hard on this thing and made it perfect. And, fill, and I'm, you know, it not only was a good script, it not only got us a lot of jobs, but then we, we sort of strip-minded. It had an a, a, a story and a B story, both of which wound up as Simpsons episodes. So it was a good— it was a good script. I always tell people, work really hard on your spec script because it's the last piece of good writing you ever have to do. <laughs> so, uh, just to say, when I ran The Simpsons, and later when I ran The Critic, and uh, you know when I was in charge of things, I would read 800 spec scripts a year. And it would be eight. And, you know, the fact that they even got to your desk, that some agent submitted it, meant that they were all pretty good. You know, there wasn't junk in there. They were all pretty good, but you were looking for the great spec script, and it had to have 
you know, an ingenious, an original plot line, had to be funny, had to be funny right from page one, and had to be funny all the way to the end. And I would always read them all the way to the end. And uh, that's important. You know, uh, I read a lot of scripts that were 45 pages, and they ran out of steam at page 40. And I would go, this person's not a closer. This person isn't dedicated. You know, and probably they shouldn't have even started writing a script till they knew they had a really good ending. So that was it. I was really looking for perfection, and it would it would be telling that I would we would sift down 800 scripts to eight great scripts, and when you would call the agents, they would say, "Yeah, that person has gotten a bunch of offers. You're competing with these other shows because a good script jumps out at you." What's been kind of funny is we're—I don't know when this will be put out there, but we're currently in lockdown right now. We're the whole world's in quarantine, and for some reason, every person I've ever met in my life has started sending me spec scripts. Will you read? Will you give me advice? And some of them, I go, "Who are you? How did you get my email? I don't know who you are." And uh, just a, a warning to your listeners, I am not allowed to read outside scripts. This is a Disney rule. It's a Fox rule. I'm not allowed to read it because I may read your script, even if it's for another show. And then if something similar turns up on The Simpsons, even though I had nothing to do with it, you could sue us. So this is a very good policy. But anyway, people have been sending me scripts and... Because I've, I've read them. I read a few just because what else have I got to do? You know, there's no excuse not to do this work when everyone knows you're just sitting home waiting for the world to heal. So I've read these scripts and it's it's been very illuminating. Like one of the scripts uh, was just unreadable. I mean, it was just it started it was a, a spec pilot and it started with three solid pages of stage directions. And uh, and then you finally, I go, Phew, I got through all that and I got to dialogue and then it would be dialogue, then a lengthy description of what the room looked like and what the guy was wearing and then uh, two more speeches, then more lengthy description. And that's where I realized one thing writers should know, young writers, aspiring writers, which is, you, your script is competing with a hundred other scripts. You know, there's not the producer who's reading your script isn't sitting there going, um, I hope I can find a nugget of greatness in here. They're going, what, give me a reason to throw this script away and move on to the next one. You know? So uh, this was a script. I, you know, I read the whole thing. No, I didn't actually. I read 15 pages and I wrote back to the guy. I said, look, no producer will ever get through your first two pages of stage directions to get to the meat of this show. And that's it. That's what you got to know is that you're not the only script being read. You are competing. It's Darwinian. You're competing with a hundred other scripts. So make it great right off the bat. So that's an important lesson. And then the other lesson came from another guy. And this person sent me a script. And uh, he said, Mike, tell me what you think of this. Um, and I did. I wrote back, uh, who are you? And he wrote back, we've had a couple of emails. And it's like, okay, sure. 
So, so please tell me what you think. I value your feedback. So he didn't. So I go, all right, I'm waiting. Well, he never sent the script. He never sent the script. He should have attached it on the first email. Two weeks later, he writes to me. He goes, I never heard back from you on the script. And I go, you didn't send it. You never sent me the script. And uh, so finally he sends me the script, at which point I'm already pissed at the guy. I hate him. I don't know one thing about this guy except that I know I hate his guts. And so I started reading the script, and it wasn't funny. It wasn't funny, but it was full of funny words. I mean, it was just jammed with funny words. Every single line was sort of, oh, I got a, I got a, a, a rub and tug in Poughkeepsie from a midget. And I, I didn't even know what a rub and tug was, but I don't think that's good. But, you know, I was, it was sort of Mad Lib style. Lots of funny words. I, but I go, these aren't jokes. These are just funny words. And that was another great lesson, again, for anyone writing comedy, is the idea um, just anything you write in comedy, stop and look at it and go, would I laugh at this? Would this, you know, not does this sound like comedy? Does this use words I've seen in comedy? Is this something I've seen in comedy? Go, would this make me laugh? And this guy could stack all the funny words in a row it's never going to make a joke. So that was it. So, you know, I thank these two guys, you know, the two scripts. And I was, I got to say, because they bothered me, because I shouldn't have been reading, I was very cruel writing back to them. I was very vicious. But, you know, they <laughs> I wasn't supposed to read them at all. Uh, and that's it. And if you do, that's the, the I think the third lesson is, Make sure it's great work before you go bothering people. And you shouldn't bother people. Just don't bother me. If you know anyone in show business, if you if your cousin has a friend in show business, yeah, bother those people. You got to use those connections. You can't be shy, you know, but make sure you're sending them something really, really great. That's my seminar. That's everything I know about screenwriting. What do you do? So tell me a little bit about, um, you mentioned it takes like 23 steps to write a episode over nine months and they're all very vivid with animation and editing. Do you like, if there is even an off season, are you find yourself ever writing down jokes? Do you keep notes for later? Like you mentioned with the golden girls script, or are you mostly just in the room pitching all you can? Like how do, how do you mine for jokes from your team and yourself? Yes. Um, I do. I do carry a pad with me, uh, very old school. You know, I know you could do this on your phone or something, but I carry a pad and I, if something occurs to me, I write it down and I write it down and then I go home at night and transfer my notes onto different files on the computer. So yes, I do that. I know, I know Larry David does that. I think he did a whole episode of his, of Curb Your Enthusiasm about his pad and how valuable it is. So yeah, you always write things down, but then yes, you've always got to be in the moment too. You've got to be able to produce every day. If you're going to work in TV, you've just got to be kind of funny and productive all the time. And in fact, my first sitcom job I got fired from it and I got fired and they said, you're too quiet in the room. And 
you know, it was a good lesson. And so I was never quiet again. Um, but again, you know, you got to warn people. There's a very funny writer I work with. He hates the story. Uh, he's a brilliant writer on The Simpsons. And they hired him at the show. And his first day, he couldn't shut up. And we were, go- we were going, we said, we need a funny title for an itchy and scratchy cartoon. And he just goes, booby and looby. Lumpy and humpy. Gibber- he was just saying gibberish. And so he, he had the... He had the premise right that, yes, keep talking, throw everything out there. But, you know, again, it's got to be jokes. You wouldn't think you have to tell comedy writers that. But, yes, it's got to be jokes. What do you, who do you look to maybe? So this is obviously a series that's more about the writer's room, as most of television is. I've interviewed some other um, you know, comedy writers, the guys that wrote The Hangover, the guys that wrote Super Troopers. Do you find um, maybe movies you enjoy, comedies you enjoy, are they better with a team or a partner usually, like someone to bounce the funny off of? Uh, I've found that. I, um, you know, I spent the first 16 years of my career with a partner, Al Jean, and um, and we would help too. I think we were very good friends. We were best friends first. We were friends in college and then we were roommates for the next three years. And, uh, the last phase of our friendship was writing together. We were sharing bunk beds in college and, uh, we were just had this kind of funny discussion. And I said, Oh gee, this could be an article. And we wrote a funny little article, a parody of magic books, called Spooky Magic, uh, which I only mentioned because that's the name of our production company, Spooky Magic. But uh, we were friends first, and you'll hear a lot of nonsense about comedy writing teams where you go, oh, they're very different, and one guy's structure, and one guy's this, and they complement each other. No, Al Jean and I um, think 90% the same. We are so very similar, and Almost always when one of us pitches a joke, the other one says, oh, I was about to say that. And that's a good way to work. You don't need a lot of friction with these people you're going to be spending, you know, 17, 18 hours a day with. So, yes, we got along fine. We agree on most everything. And, yes, I definitely think it makes for the best comedy because – uh, everything that goes in the script has at least been vetted by an audience of one. You know, for something to go in the script, at least one person who's not you has thought, hey, that's pretty funny. Let's use that. So I always thought our scripts and most scripts from comedy teams are always a draft ahead. Uh, you know, a, a comedy team's first draft reads like a single person's second draft. So also over the years, you know, you guys have moved to HD, which you, you kind of mentioned in the book that you added some more jokes in the background because they could visually see them. Um, what else has changed? And then, like, is there an average number of jokes per show you're looking for? Yes. Uh, yes. HD just put the pressure on us to make sure there's jokes in the background um, as the foreground. The show, to its, you know, luckily hasn't changed that much. You know, I mean, the characters don't even change their clothes and you know people always go will the kids ever grow up and it's like why why would you do that you know think of mickey mouse is 90 years old you want to see a 90 year old mouse on a walker you know it's uh so that part of the show hasn't changed uh it's just um 
the the pace of the show has picked up. You know, at the time The Simpsons came on, it was again the fastest pace thing people had ever seen on TV. It moved so fast, and now you can't even sit through those first season shows. They're so slow. So we find we can pack more and more into them all the time. Uh, the problem, and this is a problem with any TV show that's run a long time, is you gotta, you always have to keep topping yourself, you know? So, like an itchy and scratchy cartoon, uh, those things, it used to just be a shock. Oh, look, here's graphic violence in this cartoon, and the kids are laughing at it, but the violence had to get more and more graphic all the time. You had to keep topping yourself to the point where we almost never do an itchy and scratchy cartoon anymore, you know? We just, uh, we can't mine that vein anymore. The same thing with Bart's prank phone calls to Moe's, you know? How do you, how do you make that bigger all the time? How do you make that more shocking or cleverer? And even if you do, you know, there's a point at which you have to amp things up and get so crazy just to keep from repeating yourself that, it's not the thing anymore. It's not the original uh, concept. So that's pressure. I forget your question. My answer. Yeah, that's that's it. It's a very unique problem to have that you don't want to have the the threads and those kind of things because you can overdo them. So you mentioned the Lisa sad episode, um, kind of changing the heart and soul of the, of the show and, and being more uh, empathetic and, and not just kind of silliness and that kind of thing. What's the formula now? Like, what do you, in a in a in a great show every season? What's what's kind of there? What are some of the notes you need to hit? You know, we mix it up. You know, we'll we'll have the purely funny ones and the purely heartfelt ones, and everyone has their specialty. You know, the way The Simpsons works at this point, we have roughly twenty about twenty writers, and we do about twenty episodes a year, and so that gives every writer one shot to shine, you know, one shot to write a script and make it very personal to themselves. And even though the script will be rewritten by a team over and over and over again, that even if you turn in this, this, this script, that's so much you and so close to your heart, you know, by the time it hits the air, your name will still be on it. And 80% of it's been changed. And that's, that's the process. That's the way it works. But, you know, some people like to write the emotional ones and some people like to write the really crazy ones. And it's a nice mix of writers. There's a guy named Stuart Burns on our show who came from Futurama and his Simpsons episodes always feel like Futurama episodes, enormously convoluted plots. There's always some sort of time travel involved and it's great. Hey, good. We've got one of those. And you know, we 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 have women on the staff, and we don't pigeonhole them, but they know, oh, good, I can do a better Marge episode than you guys can. So sometimes they'll go that way. So everybody tries to mix it out, and sometimes they embrace what they're best at, and sometimes they just kind of go, oh, what? You know, you only have your one shot to sell an idea. You go, what haven't we done here? Oh, we haven't done a Lisa episode in a while. I'll come in with the best Lisa idea. Well, thanks again for your time. Is, is there anything else you want to say about the book or any last minute advice for writers? 
Yes, I'll, I'll give a, a couple of pieces of advice. Well, I guess I did tell him already, which is work really hard. Don't send it to me. Uh, I, I, I'll buy a book. Uh, you don't have to buy my book. I hope you will. People like it. It's Springfield Confidential. Uh, if you're interested in being a writer, a comedy writer, especially as TV comedy writer, get this book called Poking a Dead Frog by Mike Sands. I love everything about the book except the title. I don't know what the hell it means, but it's called Dead Frog. And it's like a four-year college education in TV comedy writing. So, And I learned something from reading the book. I learned, I learned that uh, comedy shows now, the late-night comedy shows, are looking at Twitter. They're finding new writers on Twitter and... You know, what could be more democratic than that? You know, you don't have to go to college. You don't have to you don't have to have gone to Harvard. You don't have to be in Hollywood or New York. Just go on Twitter, you know, and post a lot of great jokes. Post them. Don't mix it up. Don't post jokes. And here's a picture of my dog. You know, just think of a great joke or two every day. And. I started doing it too. I was 60 years old before I got involved in social media. But now, please, I ask anyone listening, follow me on at Mike Reese Writer. That's me, at Mike Reese Writer. I, I try and post a great joke every day, just one joke. And if that joke doesn't work, I'll post another one, you know. And it's very good for an aspiring comedy writer, not only to possibly get discovered, but also to get constant feedback, you know, constant likes. Oh, this joke worked. This joke didn't work. And I sit, I get reminded of it all the time where I'll put a joke on Twitter and I haven't made a full effort and it doesn't get a good response. And I go, Oh, I should have worked harder. And sometimes here's the free joke I'm putting on Twitter that I literally put three hours of work into those are the ones people like. It's hard. Hard work is always recognized, and and basically, laziness is not. And that is our show. Thanks again for tuning in. If it's your first time, make sure to hit that subscribe button on SoundCloud or iTunes. Also, check out the new video essay series on YouTube called Creative Principles, and give us a review. That's one of the best ways to help share these interviews. Thanks again.